Mom, Dad, I'm okay. I had a few scrapes and stuff, but um, they've washed them up and they're getting okay. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. On April 15th, my comrades and I expropriated $10,660.02 from the Sunset Branch of the Hibernia Bank. Casualties could have been avoided had the persons involved cooperated with the people's forces and kept out of the way until after our departure. I was positioned so that I could hold customers and bank personnel who were on the floor. My gun was loaded, and at no time did any of my comrades intentionally point their guns at me. Careful examination of the photographs, which were published, clearly shows this is true. Our action of April 15th forced the corporate state to help finance the revolution. As for my ex-fiancé, I don't care if I ever see him again. During the last few months, Stephen has shown himself to be a sexist, ageist pig. Not that this was a sudden change from the way he always was. For those people who still believe that I'm brainwashed or dead, I see no reason to further defend my position. Consciousness is terrifying to the ruling class, and they will do anything to discredit people who have realized that the only alternative to freedom is death, and that the only way we can free ourselves of this fascist dictatorship is by fighting, not with words, but with guns. I am a soldier in the people's army. Patria o muerte, venceremos. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to the midweek episode of Down NWCZ Radio's Down the Rabbit Hole. Um, if I sound a little different today, it's because I'm doing a different setup because, well, my house is packed up. So this will be pretty much the last recording I do from this house. Um, the next time you guys hear me, I will be in Texas. So, um, yeah, if it's a little different sound, that's because I've got a little different setup right now because everything else is packed. So we're going to see how far we get. This may end up being a two-part episode. You may get one part here and then another part with me in Texas because um, I don't know really how long this is going to go. Um, we're going to talk Patty Hearst. And this is a very interesting one. Um, before I get into it, I do want to thank all the listeners and everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you for keeping us, you know, keeping us going. Um, thank you to Fringe Radio Network and NWCZ Radio for, for keeping us on the air as well. Um, yeah, so take a listen. Like I said, this is a little bit different today because of the fact that I am doing this from my, from my living room. So, cause the studio actually does not have any furniture in it anymore. So, <laughs> in fact, actually I'm doing this from my coffee table because I already packed up the 
the, the kitchen table. So this is all I have left because this is as soon as I'm done recording, this is going into the, the, into the pod so it can head down to Texas. Um, for those of you that don't know who Patty Hearst is, um, she was the granddaughter of William Randall Hearst, who was, you know, I mean, famous media mogul. Um, the movie Citizen Kane is based off William Randall Hearst. Um, rich, rich, very rich man. Um, but one thing before we even get into it, what a lot of people know is they don't realize, like, they think that all of his children were loaded. Like, he just handed the fortune over to them. And that's not actually true. He gave them jobs within the company and all the money was in a trust. So they didn't have access to it without going through the trust and people who ran the trust were he made sure we're not part of the family not all i mean not the entire trust um committee was part of the family so that way they couldn't just squander his money because he didn't think that his sons were um that good with money so so he made sure that he didn't just hand it over so patty hurst was the middle daughter of the five daughters of Randall Hearst. Um, and William was the fourth and youngest son. Uh, following his high school graduation, Hearst attended Menlo College and University of California at Berkeley. So as soon as Patricia, um, I'm going to call Patty because that's what everyone knows. I know I believe she prefers to be called Patricia, but I'm not talking to her. So everybody knows there's Patty. So Patty was, you know, on her second year at Berkeley. Um, she was kind of a rebel to begin with. She didn't follow exactly what she was supposed to. She basically was living with her boyfriend and at that point fiance, uh, Stephen Weed. And he was a little older. When they got together, he was a 23-year-old teacher and she was 16. So already a little problematic there but they were living together um at this point she was 18 19 actually they'd been living together for the you know about a little over a year um she was in her second year at berkeley and yeah so on february 4th 1974 at the age of 19 um hearst was taken hostage by the simbanese liberation army now this is where it gets all weird. The Symbionese Liberation Army, or the SLA, um, was a group of radicals that were um, led by Donald DeFries, who also went by the name Sin-Q, um, Tumbe, I think was the way that they pronounced it, but that was the name that he used. Um, but he, they, they, the Symbionese... Let me back up a little bit here before I even get into them taking her on February 4th. Um, and let's talk a little bit about the SLA and the Symbanese Liberation Army. So the Symbanese Liberation Army, um, there is no thing of Symbanese, but um, the hardest part with most of this stuff is basically everything that we have is a he said, she said kind of thing as we get farther into the story even. Because um, really the, the basis of where the Symbanese Liberation Army came from, the only people that were there um, pretty much are dead. So we have to go on like third hand 
of where this really came from. We do know that it was Donald DeFreeze, also known as SinQ, um, who came up with it. But um, it basically, uh, coming from the biological term symbiosis, meaning the interdependence of different species, the Symbionese Liberation Army was a radical leftist revolutionary organization that sought to unify all left-wing struggles under one banner. Um, the Berkeley, California formed a group of mostly upper middle class educated young whites led by an escaped African-American convict took the seven-headed cobra as their symbol and to participate in a series of high profile crimes between 1973 and 1975. Um, most notably, they received intense media coverage for the kidnapping of media Harris, Patty Hearst, um, which is what we will talk about through this episode and it's one of those things like i said if you don't know the story of patty hearst it gets very interesting as we go because it takes a turn that if you don't know the story is kind of surprising so they are known for that um and also the murder of marcus foster who was a well respected oakland school administrator um the Symbionese Liberation Army was founded in Berkeley in 1973. By the 1970s, after years of mass protests, some on the far left called for a political revolution and began to use terrorism to achieve this goal. Out of this environment, a number of organizations emerged, including the Black Cultural Association, a black inmate group active at Vacaville Prison, which the leader of the Symbionese was part of. The group brought in white students to tutor prisoners in political science black sociology, and African heritage. Soon the group became increasingly political with black nationalism as its focus. Donald DeFries, serving a sentence for armed robbery, formed a splinter group called Unicite. The young white students from UC Berkeley who saw all black inmates as political prisoners oppressed by the racist and corrupt American society assisted in his escape in March 1973. There are, depending on which website you're looking at and which story you're looking at, there are different accounts on how DeFries escaped. Um, some say it was just because of the job that he had in the prison as um, a janitor, I believe is what it was that he was able to use the knowledge he gained from that to be able to just basically walk out. Um, but others believe that he had help from those students. Um, who knows? I mean, who knows the truth? Because the problem is, once again, everybody that would know that is pretty much dead. Um, that would know the exact details. So, spoiler alert, there's a lot of death later. By that summer, DeFries and a small group of white supporters had formed the Symbionese Liberation Army to oppose what they saw as an oppressive, racist society. With the slogan, Death to the Fascist Insect that Preys Upon the Life of the People. The SLA adopted a Marxist platform that included ending racism, monogamy, the prison system, and establishing homelands within the United States, states for groups of color. So they wanted each really within in the state to have the each group of color kind of have its own homeland um which i don't know i mean in my brain that just sounds to me like they want more segregation but maybe i'm reading it wrong or understanding it wrong so armed with stolen weapons and determined to create a violent revolution the group on november 6th 1973 assassinated marcus foster a popular oakland superintendent 
for a supposed support of an identification system for students. Uh, rather than igniting a revolution, their actions were met with intense scorn from the Berkeley left. The group then went into hiding, especially after two members were arrested for Foster's murder. Now, see, with Foster, it was one of those weird things because they thought that what Foster was doing was, you know, which is still an argument today, um, trying to make sure that the students had ID and that there was possibly, and this is a sticking point that goes back and forth on whether this was really true or not, was armed guards in the school to protect the students, which DeFries felt that that was going with the system and using the cops to do whatever with the, you know to 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 control the sh the kids um the students uh so he had a problem with that and he had a problem with marcus now the hard part with this is with marcus foster he was one of the first African Americans, if not, I believe, I'd have to look. I, and a couple of them I saw first, other ones I saw one of the first. So, I mean, this is a very interesting one to go down. Um, either way, he was one of the first, like, black African American superintendents to uh, run a school like this, to run a, you know, a, 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 be a superintendent of the Oakland school system. This was huge. And he had the support of the Black Panthers. He had the support of most of the left, everything else. So when the Simbanese, you know, killed him, they pretty much got rid of a lot of their support, anybody that could have been supporters and would have helped them. So it became a huge problem. So that was really kind of how they, they came to be. So... And I'm overviewing a lot, you know, which, you know, we do a lot on this this show. We kind of go over an overview because we want you to go look into this. Look into it. See what you can find. Um, one of the really weird parts about it, too, is the Symbionese Liberation Army had a, their calling card was uh, cyanide-tipped bullets. So, and when they, they assassinated Foster, they, they shot him with cyanide tipped bullets not that it mattered they they it was a kill shot anyway um i can't remember how many times they hit him but they hit him a few times um to kill him so that's kind of a, a quick overview of the symbanese liberation army where they came from um everything else so now we'll get into what happened with patty so so hearst was born patricia campbell hearst on February 20th, 1954, in Los Angeles, California. Like we said, granddaughter of William Randall Hearst, famous 19th century newspaper mogul and founder of the Hearst Media Empire, and the third of five daughters born to Randolph A. Hearst, William's fourth and youngest son. So following her high school graduation, Hearst attended Menlo College and the University of California, Berkeley. So that's kind of a quick start to everything with her. Like I said, this one gets very interesting because, I mean, it's just, it's not what you expect to happen. Um, and one of the big things that we're going to talk about as we go through this is the idea of um, Stockholm Syndrome, which a lot of people, there's huge arguments on whether or not she really had Stockholm Syndrome or what, what happened here. So... Before we go into 
everything with her, I do want to pretty much define Stockholm Syndrome. So, um, Stockholm Syndrome, it's a common term these days, deployed to describe the bond that victims of kidnapping or hostage situations sometimes develop with their captors. Stockholm Syndrome, and uh, it got its name 50 years ago during a failed bank robbery in Sweden. So, in Stockholm, Sweden. The Stockholm Syndrome initially dubbed Normal, Normal Stenberg Syndrome after the square where the bank heist took place has since been used in connection with hostage takings around the world, including, which we will talk more about, the kidnapping of Patty Hearst in the 70s. So, quick look on Stockholm Syndrome and how it got its name. Like I said, we're gonna, I'm going to gloss over this quite a bit, and then we will talk about later where this becomes into... Uh, play with the Patty Hearst. So Stockholm Syndrome refers to the bond that can develop between hostages and their captors in hostage taking and kidnapping situations. In some cases, hostages may develop sympathies for their captors and their cause and even turn against the police. Rather than a diagnosis of a disorder, experts describe it as a psychological coping mechanism used by some hostages to endure being held captive and abused. It got its name, so the term can be traced back to Swedish criminologist and psychiatric Niels Bejero, who advised police in a standoff during a bank robbery in the Swedish capital in August 1973. During the standoff, some of the hostages appeared to side with the hostage takers and against the police. A phenomenon Bejero called Normalsturg Syndrome internationally became known as Stockholm Syndrome because nobody can pronounce normal normal storg syndrome n-o-o or sorry n-o-r-r-m-a-l-m-s-t-o-r-g syndrome nobody can pronounce that so we all call it stockholm bergerot's daughter susan says her father who died in 1988 never thought the term would gain such traction worldwide he didn't understand that it would become such a big thing so during the robbery on august 23 1973 convicted thief john eric Olson tried to rob a bank in downtown Stockholm while on furlough from prison. Police responded quickly and a standoff ensued. Olson, armed with a submachine gun, took four bank employees hostage and demanded three million kroner, a bulletproof vest, and a getaway car. He also demanded that his former jailmate, Clark Olofsson, be released from prison and brought to the bank. Authorities agreed. The drama played out on live television in Sweden as police tried to persuade Olsen and Olofsson to surrender. Even Prime Minister Olaf Palme got involved in the negotiations. At one point, a hostage, Kristen Enmark, told Palme over the telephone that she was afraid of the police, not of the two criminals. She appealed to authorities to meet their demands. Enmark later said she had developed a bond with Olofsson, whom she saw as the guarantor of her safety. Two police officers were injured with gunshot wounds during the standoff, which ended on August 28th when police using tear gas stormed the bank, arrested Olsen and Olsen, and freed the hostages. So that's where it kind of got its name. And like I said, we kind of glossed over that quite a bit, but that's the, the down, dirty part of it. Um, here's some interesting parts about Stockholm Syndrome, though. One of the most important you know, famous cases that it was used in besides its name, where it got its name is in the Patty Hearst case, which like I said, we will get into and talk about really in depth kind of how that goes. So 
Is it real or myth? Stockholm Syndrome isn't listed as a diagnosis by the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems. Some experts question whether it's a psychological condition at all or just a survival strategy. Rational choices made by some people as they face extreme danger. In the U.S., some law enforcement experts have said the phenomenon is rare and overpublicized by the media, but it still features frequently in popular culture, including books, films, and music, and has entered the English lexicon as an informal term for people who forge unexpected bonds with others who treat them badly. Stockholm Syndrome-inspired movies like the 2013 thriller Labor Day with Kate Winslet, Josh Brolin, and Gaitlin Griffith, and the 2018 film Stockholm with Ethan Hawke and Numi Rapace. The latter recounted the failed 1973 bank heist. It also the title of songs by bands including One Direction, Muse, and Blink-182. So it's one of those things that Stockholm Syndrome is one of those things that has become something that most of us understand. If I say Stockholm Syndrome, most people will understand what that's supposed to mean. But really, it's not actually something that is recognized by the American Psychiatric or the international psychiatric communities. Um, not in their books anyway, is published. A lot of doctors still do recognize the, the possibility of it, but I think the problem that we run into is it's an overused term that I don't think it's going to happen as much as people think it will. A lot of people use it as something like, oh, this is a normal, happens all the time, and it doesn't. This is not a normal thing. It's very rare, um, very complicated. So those are a couple of things that we need to know the, who the SLA is, and we also need to know what Stockholm Syndrome is as we go throughout this episode and talk about what happened with Patty Hearst. So we'll start with really the kidnapping. I mean, we didn't go deep into who she was or anything like that because, I mean, it's it's she's an heiress to a throne, you know, what many would call a princess because... I mean, she's a Hearst. Um, may not mean as much now, but I mean, if you're into the stuff like we've talked about, the media and stuff like that, um, the media, how the media can control everything, Patty Hearst's family was a huge part of that. So like I said, on February 4th, 1974, when Patty Hearst was 19, uh, she was taken hostage by members of the Symbionese Liberation Army, who aimed to garner a hefty ransom from her wealthy father. Um, the way they did it, one of the members, I'm not going to go through and figure out names because there's a lot of names and none of it really mean anything. Um, the ones we remember is Sin Q is the main one. Um, he's the leader. And then there's another one that we'll talk about later, Bill Harris. Um, but Emily, other than that, um, and Bill's wife, Emily, other than that, I mean, everyone's just kind of there. Uh, maybe Cujo who was, um, another member, um, Cujo was his, was not his given name. That was the name that they gave him, the army, the SLA gave him. But, um, when they kidnapped her, one of the, the girls came up, knocked on the door. Her fiance at the time, Stephen Weed, um, opened the door. She told him that she'd backed into one of the cars in the parking lot. She thought it might be theirs and she needed to use their phone while she was there. 
two men broke in or you know came in behind her pushed their way in um beat steven i've heard with a bottle and i heard with the, the the butt of the gun i've heard both depending on which article we're reading like i said where we run into a lot of this most of this comes down to what patty said and what the surviving members of the sla say and in a lot of ways what they say contradicts each other so there's a lot of that as we go through this like i said there's going to be a lot of he said she said because depending on which book you're reading or which article you're reading and who's interviewed at that time and who they were talking to depends on which story you get so we're going to kind of that then that is really the biggest crutch of this whole story of whether or not you know, at the end, once we get to it, whether or not she was liable or not, whether or not she had control of her own faculties. Um, and that really comes down to which story and which version you believe. So they broke in, beat Stephen. Um, pretty much every story does agree that he ran out. Um, some say he just ran away. Others say that he ran out so that he could call for help. Uh, one thing to remember that a lot of people have to remember, this was before cell phones you actually had to go get a phone. So he was running to the neighbors, supposedly, to use their phone to call for help. So either way, he left. So he leaves. He runs away. Everyone, you know, figures he's a bad guy. Um, whatever. Um, they take her, Patty. They, they uh, tie her up, gag her, carry her out to the car. Um, at one point she does get away, but then they get, they catch her really quick again, put her in the car, drive away. Uh, when they were driving away, um, one of them does get pulled over. When he got pulled over, they, amazingly, the cops just let him go. But at the time, if you really think about it, there was no reason. There had been no report yet to the police that there was anything going on because they did fire their guns on the way out to scare the neighbors to go back into their house. There was nothing, the police had not gotten any reports of this yet. So when they pulled over the car, the only reason they pulled them over was because as they were driving away, they forgot to turn on the headlights. So they basically pulled them over to just say, hey, yo, turn on your headlights. And that was it. And then they drove away with her in the car. Now the rest of what we know, like I said, becomes a his, a she, he said, she said of what happened once she got into, you know, they got her to the the area um or their hideout once they got to the hideout um the one the thing that everyone agrees on though is she was put in a closet for a time um quite a long time but she was in the closet handcuffed and or not handcuffed but tied up and uh blindfolded very interesting you know keep her away from everyone uh, locker in the closet everything else if you listen to her story i mean it was it was harrowing which i mean it would be it'd be very harrowing um she's repeatedly threatened with death i mean according to hearst like i said completely uh scared threatened with death um she was allowed to leave the closet for meals still blindfolded and started talking in groups political discussions she was given a flashlight for reading and SLA political tracks to memorize. Um, she's confined to the closet for weeks. And then at one point, DeFries told her that the war council decided or was thinking about killing, me or killing her or 
letting her stay with them. And she better start thinking about that as a possibility. And that's one of the things that we'll start talking about that all of a sudden she starts seeming as though she's aligning with them and becoming a member. Um, and then it all gets very, very weird from there. Um, so after she was taken, they basically, a lot of it was in trade because after the murder of uh, Marcus, they basically were, there was two men, Russ Little and Joe Ramiro, who were arrested for the murder of Marcus Foster. And part of the reason they'd taken Patty was to hopefully is a, a trade for those two people, but the state refused to let that happen. Um, then governor of the state or, you know, later president Ronald Reagan basically said, this is never going to happen. We're never going to release these men as, as a trade. So then they basically tried trading her for money, but it was really weird because they didn't do like most cases with the kidnapping. They tried trading directly. You know, people would be like, Hey, give us, you know, this much money and we'll release her. They actually came back and said, we wanted that they want the the family, the Hearst family, to distribute seventy dollars worth of food to every needy Californian. When they figured the math into this in nineteen seventies money, that was four hundred million dollars. Um, her, her family didn't have that. This is what a lot of people don't understand. A lot of people thought that you know, his her family. The hearse just had that kind of money laying around. Like, that was pocket change when it wasn't. So, they basically, you know, said, do this. Uh, Hearst's father was able to obtain a loan and arrange for the immediate donation of $2 million worth of food to the poor of the Bay Area um, and use a project called People in Need. And they used uh, some people who, because one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is they think that, you know, like food banks and those things like helping people is something that's been around for a long time. It really wasn't as widely used until later. So they were trying to put this into place and get the, that food donation out there um, and do what they could. Uh, but it didn't quite work. Uh, the first day that they had it, where they, they tried giving out the food, um, the trucks had problems. They couldn't get there. There wasn't as much as, there was more people than there was food. There was riots. There was all sorts of issues that happened that made it all look really, really bad. And the SLA basically came back and said that the, the $2 million that he tried to give wasn't enough. That it was a, a worthless gesture, uh, that he should have done more. So and there's a whole lot. And I mean, I'm skipping over a few things here because there's a whole lot of communiques between um, the SLA and the FBI and the radio stations. They make tapes and drop them off at the radio stations um, with Hearst talking, with Patty herself talking, um, and to do all that kind of stuff. Um, it's quite interesting. They they had some interesting ways of doing this. Then the talks broke down after they, you know, they, they tried with the money. Uh, the SLA didn't believe that it was enough 
Patty Hearst, that father, uh, Mr. Hearst basically came back and said, um, I can't do anymore. My hands are tied. I can't do anymore. And basically handed it over to the, the Hearst Trust, uh, which was a non, which was a charity group um, ran by the Hearst. And they made an offer of basically $4 million. They'd give $2 million now, $2 million later after her return. Um, the SLA said that wasn't good enough and basically said that her father wasn't trying enough and he didn't care about her. And this is where they really start to break break her down. And this is where everyone starts getting into the whole Stockholm Syndrome questions, blah, blah, blah. Because they get her convinced that her parents don't care. That her parents have this money. They really do. They have her convinced that they, he owns like a silver mine. And there's all these crazy things that they think that her father, Randall Hurst, has that there's no proof of and I mean really it doesn't show that he has any of this stuff so they get her convinced that he has these assets and these abilities to be able to do what needs to be done to save her and that he's not and that's where they start breaking her down because they're like look nobody cares about you they don't want to do anything they don't want to help you they don't want to do this and then she talks about they talk about too of like you know the, the machine and how the fbi and the police that they would shoot her down just as quickly as she wouldn't they would anyone else they don't care about her because they're they, they they're just not good people and they're it's everything else so there's a whole bunch of stuff that he's filling the, her head with plus the fact that you know for months two months um, they had her basically locked in a closet from every account that she has that she'd been locked in a closet for almost two months they would let her out so she could have political debates with them but still while you know having a blindfold she couldn't see their faces that the only interaction she had was with the members of the SLA and this is where a lot of people talk about the fact that she basically would have you know, to stay alive, you would do what you need to do. And that's where the big debate comes in. At what point is doing what you need to do to survive? Do you cross a line? And that's what we're going to get to here in a minute. So for two months, she's with them. They've got her brainwashed. And that's another word that we, we use quite a bit is brainwashing. Um, they do what they can to make her believe that her parents don't care, that the military, that the military, the, the police, the FBI, nobody cares about her and that they've given up. And that's where she starts to talk to them more and agree with them more. And if you go with what she says, she basically says she did this as a survival technique, that she knew if she agreed with them and acted like she cared and that she understood and that she was part of them that she was more likely to stay alive um and she they wouldn't kill her so that's why she started doing it which makes sense it really does um and then like i said two months into it she basically was asked her decision her select remain with the SLA in fight. The blindfold was removed, allowing her to see her captors for the first time. After this, she was given daily lessons on her duties, especially weapons, drills, um, everything else. So and this is the part that gets weird, though, is she makes the announcement two months in, but we don't know at what point she decided to join them, um, when that really was. So, and then 
that was kind of thing that once she was part of the group, there was kind of a, a free love feeling within the group. And this is where a lot of things start coming into play with, once again, we start coming into the he said, she said, or they said, they said, um, where Patty says one thing, the group members say another. Now, the group had a free love kind of feeling, even, you know, uh, the, the two people that were married, they still did not believe in like monogamy. They did kind of their own thing. And then this is where it comes in that Hearst, you know, claims to have been raped by William Wolfe. And this is where the huge argument comes in. And this is one that we'll talk about later with the like prosecutors and the way they talk to her about it. Um, is she did not, and she very admittedly, did not physically fight back against the sexual advances. But in the case that you got to think about this, when you're a captive, do you really have the the ability to say yes or no to agree to something like that? And that's where it starts to get weird in the Stockholm Syndrome and everything else and whether or not um, she agreed to it or not, or whether she's even a able to agree to it or not so there's a whole lot of questions and actually from her account she was actually raped by pretty much all the men in the group because they just passed each other around you know everybody just kind of if you you wanted some it was free love you just you just got some so that, that it becomes very horrible in that sense and like i said two months after she had been abducted abducted Hearst announced on an audio tape released to the media that she had joined the SLA and adopted the name Tanya. I've actually heard it as Tanya or Tanya. Either way, it's spelled T-A-N-I-A, so, which is a tribute to Che Guerrero's uh, comrade. Uh, Haiti Tamara Bunky Biter. So, so yeah. And then, now it's going to get even weirder. So that was April 3rd where she said, hey, I'm going to join, I've joined the SLA, I'm now part of it. Now, once she joined the SLA, the next thing she did was even crazier. On April 15, 1974, Hearst was recorded on surveillance video wielding an M1 carbine while robbing the Sunset District branch of the Hibernia Bank at 1450 Noriega Street in San Francisco. Hearst, identified under her pseudonym of Tanya, yelled, I'm Tanya, up, up, against the wall, motherfuckers. Two men entered the bank while the robbery was occurring and were shot and wounded by the SLA. According to testimony at a trial, a witness thought that Hearst had been several places behind the several paces behind the others when running to the getaway car. So that's where everything starts to go a whole nother level. Where all of a sudden she went from being, you know, the the kidnap victim to now she's actually helping them rob a bank. Now, how crazy is that? I mean, robbing the bank, everything like that um, is insane. So when they, they, they go to rob the bank, they, they made sure that it was a bank that had surveillance cameras. Now, a lot of people are thinking, well... All banks have surveillance cameras. This is 1974. It was not as common then. And even then, the surveillance cameras really, they took, I think it was one picture every four seconds. 
which is insane. So it's one of those things here where they made sure they picked one that had surveillance camera because they wanted, they wanted people to see Patty Hearst robbing a bank, which is just insane. So she's robbing the bank. They get her on camera robbing a bank. This is the heiress to an empire on camera robbing a bank saying she's Tanya. Once again, this is where everything comes back of, uh, is she a common criminal now or is she still part of the group? Has she been brainwashed? Now I've used the term a couple times now where I've said brainwash. Um, I did go through and talk about Stockholm Syndrome, but I didn't say anything really about what brainwashing or the idea of is. We've heard it repeatedly, we know what it is, but I just kind of want to define it real quick. So, um, brainwashing, also known as mind control, coercive, coercive persuasion, thought control, thought reform, and all that stuff. Coercive persuasion is the word that they use the most um, when you're talking legalities. So, um, it's a concept that the human mind can be altered or controlled by certain psychological techniques. Brainwashing is said to reduce its subject's ability to think critically or independently to allow the introduction of new unwanted thoughts and ideas into their minds, as well as to change their attitudes, values, and beliefs. Um, the term brainwashing was first used in English by Edward Hunter in 1950 to describe how the Chinese government appeared to make people cooperate with them during the Korean War. This was the year after George Orwell's 1984 was published, in which O'Brien said to Winston Smith in the Ministry of Love, we make the brain perfect before we blow it out. Everyone is washed clean. Research into the concept also looked at Nazi Germany, at some criminal cases in the United States, and the actions of human traffickers. In the late 60s and 70s, the CIA's MKUltra, which if you have questions on that, go back. We had an entire episode on it. Um, Experiments failed with no operational use of the subjects. Scientific and legal debate followed, as well as media attention about the possibility of brainwashing being a factor when lysergic acid dithelamide, or LSD, was used, or in the conversion of people to, to groups which are considered to be cults. The concept of brainwashing is not known generally, not now generally accepted as a scientific fact. In casual speech, brainwashing and its verb form brainwash are used figuratively to describe the use of propaganda to persuade or sway public opinion. So that's a basic generalization of what brainwashing is. Um, it's one of those things that whether you believe brainwashing is a possibility or not, it's, it becomes important as we go through and talk about this um, and everything else. Now, the Cambridge Dictionary says brainwash to make someone believe something by repeatedly telling him or her that it is true and preventing any other information from reaching him or her. So this is, in many ways, what the SLA has done to Patty Hearst. They have brainwashed her, if you believe it, by doing exactly that. They kept telling her over and over again, nobody cares about you. Nobody wants you. Everything else. The, the FBI doesn't want to save you. They want to kill you along with us. If they came in here guns blazing, they'd take everyone out, including you. And they would tell her this over and over again for months. And she had no other, nobody to argue that with. She saw the video. The, she, they, they watched it live 
with her watching of her father saying, I can't do anymore. I'm beyond. After this, it's out of my hands. Basically seeming as though he's given up. And doesn't care about her anymore. And this is what they made her believe. And they kept telling her this over and over and over again. And now they've convinced her to rob a bank. Now she has crossed the line. And this is what they tell her. Now you're one of us. You have been a part of this. So even if she didn't believe in everything to that point, once she robbed the bank, she was a criminal. And they say it on the news and everything else where they basically say she is a criminal. And at that point, she literally believes that if the FBI was to see her, they're not going to arrest her. They're not going to take her into custody. They're going to shoot her on the spot. And this is what they've told her over and over again. And this is where everything starts to get weirder and sketchier because that's the thing that they've been telling her over and over again. But like I said, we have two different stories. We have her saying that she was just trying to survive. That's what she was doing. She was doing this all to survive. She was playing a part so that they would not kill her. You got other parts where they said she was gung-ho and into it. So, but I mean, one of the people that's saying that's one of the people that basically, you know, kidnapped her and was part of the kidnapping. So, of course, they're going to say that, that she was into it so that they don't look as bad. So that's the beginning of it. That's where she robs the bank. Um, she comes out of it. You know, they, they get done. They rob the bank. And like I said, now she's a criminal. She's a criminal with the rest of them. And according to the U.S. government, she's a criminal. She has robbed a bank. Which, wow. Yeah. And it's one of those things, like I said, look this up, read some of this stuff. You know, we're, we're just getting into the whole idea of her being a part of the SLA. Was she a part of it or was she coerced? Did she actually join? What happened here? So there's the bank robbery. That was April 15th, 1974. On May 16th, 1974, William Harris... Because at this point, basically after the bank robbery, they split into groups of three in a lot of ways where they do a lot of things in groups of three. And she was paired up with William Harris and Emily Harris, who were, you know, husband and wife. So on May 16th, 1974, William Harris and Emily went into uh, Mel's Sporting Goods and left Patty Hearst in the van waiting for them to go while they went in and did shopping because she was too high profile to take into public spaces. This is another place where a lot of people point out she had the keys in a car full of guns. She could have easily just started the car and drove away. Why didn't she? So, and this is one of those, you know, where it comes back to was she brainwashed? Was she coerced? Did she feel like this was her only thing? I mean, they really made her believe that the only survival that she had was to stay with the group. That if she left the group, that the FBI and the you know would kill her, and that her family no longer wanted her. So as far as she knew, in her brain, she really it seems believed that that was the case. That she had no choice but to stay, which gets interesting. 
So they leave her in the car. They go inside. Um, Harris claims he didn't try to steal. Um, and yeah, they say he did. But either way, he, he they tried to stop him as he left because he was trying to you know shoplift. Um, while they were scuffling, as Harris ran, um, his gun fell out. A couple other things. Uh, there, there was a lot of things. Um, a lot of issues going on. But while they're in the scuffle, they're holding Emily. Her, uh, William Harris is held down. They've got him dead rights. Basically, going to call the police. He's going to get arrested. Everything else. Um, so of course. You would think this is the perfect opportunity, right? Hearst lets them get arrested. Police show up. She's saved. But what does she do? She 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 shoots. She pulls out one of the guns and unloads a clip. Not really. And it seems like from everything everyone said, and she even admitted, she never shot at them. She shot near them. Just trying to scare them so they would let William Harris up and let Emily go. So she unloads a clip, pulls out another gun, starts to shoot a couple more rounds. When she shoots those rounds, she sees William Harris and Emily running at her. So she stops shooting, they get in the car, they drive away. On the way out, Hurst and, Her and uh, the Emily and William uh, carjacked a couple more cars and abducted owners. Uh, one of them, they, uh, they, they actually, this one was quite funny. Um, they actually basically had a gentleman who was trying to sell his car, his van. They convinced him to basically, um, get the car. Like they, they were going to buy it. And he, he, yeah. He said, okay, but I need to go with you for the test drive. As they left on the test drive, um, Emily had them, you know, pull over and pick up Patricia and William. When they did, they said, hey, we're the SLA. We're taking a car. They drove away um, with the car and him, basically kidnapped him for the evening. Um, and it was really weird. And all the, the accounts from the, the gentleman that was kidnapped, it was basically like, they, they acted like it was just they were best friends. They talked to him. They asked him what he, how he was doing. He told them that, you know, hey, everything. I just need to get back in time tomorrow because I have a baseball game. And so they started talking baseball and all sorts of stuff. Um, they kept him overnight and let him go in the morning. And then and disappeared. So and the, to hide, they're like, where should we go to hide? So, of course, where does everybody go? Um, Disneyland. So they went to Disneyland because they figured if they could go to Disneyland, to the hotels around Disneyland, and hide with the tourists. That nobody would see them. They could just kind of blend in with the tourists and basically hide that way. But in their haste to get away um, and switching cars over and over again, the very first car that they had that they had when Patty was shooting at, you know, near the people to get them off Willem Harris, in that car, that car had had a parking ticket that they were they were actually going to pay which always kills me that they they break all these laws do all this stuff but they were going to pay their parking tickets so weird um but they left it in the car 
when they swapped it out and left it. They very quickly, um, they determined that that was the car that they, that the Harris's and Patty had when she was firing at everyone. They got the car, the FBI searched it, they found the parking ticket. They went through, figured out where the parking, they'd gotten the parking ticket at, the address that it was at. That address actually right, right across the street from where their safe house was. Um, once they got caught, there was, you know, the SLA for whatever reason, probably because they, they had been, you know, they had fired, there had been an incident, the SLA had moved to another safe house, which they did quite a bit. They moved a lot. Um, there was a couple of cases of them moving from places, burning the places, um, doing all sorts of weird stuff to places when they left, um, all that, but they left this place and moved on, but they didn't go that far. They only went a little, you know, uh, not far at all and basically this police and the fbi started searching the area kind of going out and you know looking to see where they found them um they were in a very uh, african-american black predominant area of la was where they were at and while they were looking they basically were just asking people and showing pictures have you seen these people have you seen these people um and basically it came down to some little old lady they, they interviewed her, asked, hey, have you seen these people? And she said, you mean all the white people with guns? And they're like, uh, yes, those people. The lady said, hey, I know what house they're at. Um, I think it was either her daughter-in-laws or her daughters, one of the, either way, whatever. She said, this is the house they're at. Go find them. Um, so basically the LA SWAT and the FBI went to the house that they were at um, all because William Harris had tried to shoplift. This is what's insane. And this is one of those things where it comes down to quite a bit. And you see this in a lot of things like Colts and stuff like that. What ends up taking down the group in a way. And I mean, this, th there is more to the group. This isn't the end. Um, this is probably going to be pretty close to the end of this episode though. And we're going to continue after on the, the next episode to finish this out. But this is what we see all the time. It's something simple, something innocuous, something completely dumb. And what it came down to was a parking ticket. They found them because of a parking ticket. Now, once they find them, they, of course, you know, the L.A., you know, SWAT and the FBI SWAT descends on the house and everything goes awry from there. Um, in fact, actually, that's where I think I'm going to end this episode and I'm going to come back next week and we'll talk about what happened, you know, in the, when the SWAT comes down on the house and then also talk about what happens afterwards. Because the one thing that you have to remember, Patty Hearst isn't there. Once they come down on the SLA, Patty Hearst isn't there. Patty Hearst is with William Harris and Emily Harris in a completely in a hotel by Disneyland. So it continues on. Her story continues with the SLA, even after the firefight and everything else, where she could have easily walked away. And that's where we'll continue next week once we get to it. Uh, or not next week, it'll be my next turn. So in two weeks, um, you will get me again from Texas this time with the new, you know, the second part of Patty Hearst and the SLA. So thank you all 
for listening and tuning in every week. I'm sorry if this episode's a little weird. Like I said, it's it's I had to set up. This is my my travel setup um, in a different area because my house is pretty much packed up because I'm I'm out. I'm, I'm leaving Washington and heading for Texas. Um, in fact, as you know, this is out um, in two days. I'm gonna leave my house in Washington for the last time, and I'm driving myself to Texas. So with my wife but so thank you all for listening and um big d has the the this week's episode on the the weekend episode by himself because i like i said will be driving so thank you all for listening i will see you uh in two weeks thank you